Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Naming Your Stage in Apprenticeship series. Hi, everybody. Um, Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 29. Just a reminder that we do have recommended reading to go along with our teaching and practice. Um, I am tomorrow off to the Oregon coast, and if you're anything like me, you bring along a pile of books, or at least a book, maybe. I say that in faith over your life. Um, Some great recommended reading on that next week. But today, we come to the end of our practice. The basic idea for the last month or two has been around this concept of stage theory, which is an attempt at spiritual cartography, an attempt to map out the journey of apprenticeship to Jesus over a lifetime. At the beginning of our practice, we said that stage theory is a synthesis of biblical theology, church tradition, and the best of the human sciences, in particular psychology from a Jesus perspective. Due to that, our teaching has been a little heavier on the inner dynamics of the soul than on biblical theology. And the main reason is not because we don't adore the Bible, but because the writers of the Bible teach stage theory not with an academic essay or an infographic with a linear timeline on a slide, but in the form of biography. They just tell the stories of men and women who follow God over a lifetime and expect you and me, the reader, to pay close attention and know the patterns of the living God's work with and in the human soul from birth to death. So we thought it would be fun to end with a case study from the Bible. Um, Not only that, but I, maybe this is the Spirit of God in me, I think it is. This was my morning devotion about a month ago in my read through the Bible in a year, but this could also just be me the day before vacation feeling a little spunky, all right? So time will tell. But I thought it would be fun to do it from a story in the Old Testament that most of us read and cringe if we read it at all and we're more likely to skip over it and act as if it's not in the Bible. Like, you know those stories in the Bible where you're like, that's just not good for the Jesus PR machine? Like, I don't know what's going on in that story, but at face value reading, it doesn't feel right to me. Let's read one like that. That actually, I think, is not only literary and thoughtful and subtle and will really make you think, but I actually think there's a whole lot of raw power in the story. Genesis 29, for those of you that are new to the Bible, to catch you up on the story of Genesis and the Old Testament so far, in Genesis 1, God creates the world and then human beings to rule over it. But in Genesis 3, they abuse all of their free will and with it the power and authority put into their hands by God. And it kind of everything goes belly up and sin is like a cancer. It just spreads through humanity like a disease. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, this father, to restart the human project. And he makes Abraham a promise, quote, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. The word for offspring in Hebrew is literally your seed. Through you and your family line will somehow come about the healing and salvation of all humanity. From there, basically from Genesis 12 all the way to the right, the writers of the Bible tell the story of God's fidelity to that promise 
in spite of Israel's infidelity time after time after time, and tell the story from Abraham to his son Isaac to his two sons Jacob and Esau all the way down to Jesus of Nazareth, who is the end of that story. Now, um, we pick up the story in chapter 29 right after a falling out between Jacob and his older brother Esau. Jacob is on the run. He goes back to his ancestral village, one, to escape the violent retribution of his brother, and two, to marry. Let's read from verse 15. After Jacob had stayed with him, his uncle Laban, kind of a distant relative, for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be, if only every employer said that. Um, Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. Now, weak eyes was a Hebrew idiom that was a gracious way of saying she did not fit the cultural standard of beauty, or in plain language, she was ugly. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, the both and. Now, Jacob was ahead of his time, and so he was all about Leah because of her IQ, her inner character, and he was all about the empowerment of women in the ancient world. No, not at all. Jacob, (laughs) just wait, Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. This is, he comes in with no bride price, ancient world, marriage is a part of the economy, not just in a repressive way, in a a utilitarian way, and he has no no dowry to offer, and so here, let me work for you for seven years. Laban, 19, said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Classic father-in-law line right there. I guess it's better than you than some other guy. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to marry Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. What a romantic line. Can we just get like an awe right now? Oh, it's so sweet. Now this, other than the Song of Songs, this is really one of the only examples in all of the Old Testament of marriage for love. This is the ancient Near East. Arranged marriage is by far the norm, still is in much of the East to this day. But this is right out of a 90s Hollywood, like before it got all lame as it is now. Back in the glory days of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, back when there was a real, when even I would watch it, I think Hitch was right. That was like the end. That was the last romantic comedy. I was down. I was down with that. And then after that, it's just all downhill. But this is like, there's this beautiful Hollywood kind of, ah, we just have that sense. So then, 21, after seven years, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. (laughs) Classic son-in-law line. 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place, and he gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Now, this is weird when you read this later, like how, what was going on there? Well, one option is just that he's drunk. Um, This is at the end of a wedding feast. You do the math. And that could be, it does not say that, but more likely this is just the ancient Near East. They're not at a five-star bougie hotel in downtown New York or whatever for the honeymoon night. They're in a tent late at night in the dark with no mood lighting and a guy who's been waiting for seven years to have sex. And like, and it's literally an oversight. That is the more likely reading of the story. Now, 24, with that, Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant 
when morning came, there was Leah. Or I love the King James, and behold, in the morning, it was Leah. <laughs> There's so much I want to say about that line. <laughs> so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now this is an Hebrew, like this is a literary example of irony. Anybody know what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. And in the story just before this, he what? He deceived his brother and his father. So now the idea is that the deceiver is deceived, the trickster is tricked, this is irony. Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Got you. Now you're stuck. You're in debt if you want to marry your love. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, most people stop reading the story right here for reasons that are about to become clear. But this is the closest thing to a Hollywood ending. Now, to get that Hollywood ending, you have to just ignore any emotional resonance and empathy that you have for Leah in the story. But at this moment, Jacob and Rachel are in love, and finally there's the wedding, and they kind of walk off into the sunset. But this is nowhere even close to the end of the story. It's just getting started. 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. Notice in the mess of this story and the patriarchy and the sin, the compassion of God over the pain of Leah's life story. But Rachel, oh, here's another example of irony, remained childless. Now Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben is a play on words in Hebrew. It sounds like the Hebrew word for misery. How would you like that to be your name? What's your name? It's kind of like miseru or what? I don't know. We have no equivalent for that, but it's kind of like misery. Again, surely he'll love me now. Now I have borne him a son. Now my husband will love me. She conceived again, 33, and when she gave birth to his son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon which means he hears me, God hears me. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to his son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him not one, not two, but three sons. So she named him Levi. Levi means attached. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to his son, she said, okay, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which means praise. Then she stopped having children. Now, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Again, notice the irony. Here is the beauty queen who has it all together, and she is jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. On one level, that's just a little bit dramatic. 
But on the other, that just goes to shows, show that like the, the depth of her pain and her wound, just what a heartache this was for her. Now Jacob became angry with her. Notice that, the love of his life. And he said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Right, you're angry with me. I'm not God. I'm not your body. I'm not fate. This is way outside of my control. But yet so often when we are angry over the pain of our wound, how often do we just take it out on whoever is within striking distance, right? And our spouse or our children or our close friends or family are just the collateral damage of all the pain we have not worked through. Same case here. Then she said, three, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. Now that sounds bizarre to us, but that was a custom, not normative, but a custom in the ancient Near East. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob said, okay, another woman to sleep with, and slept with her. And she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, for he listened to my plea or my prayer and gave me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan, which means vindication. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. Notice what's going on in her heart, right? So she named him Naphtali, which means my struggle. Like, how would you like to have your name be like Hitler's manifesto, book title? What's your name? Mein Kampf, you know? My struggle? Like, seriously, like, that's what she's doing to her children. Now, when Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife, not as a servant or a slave, but as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Gad means a troop is coming, meaning out of my family and my husband and my children, a troop is coming. Like she is the first to see with prophetic eyes that we are having more than a family. We're having the beginning of 12 tribes that will become the nation of Israel. It's fascinating. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The woman will call you happy. So she named him Asher, which is the Hebrew word meaning happy. How can you imagine that? Like, what's your name? Mein Kampf? Oh, that sucks. What's your name? Happy. Wow. <laughs> you had the better end of the bargain right there. But notice the difference in parenting from one mother to another. Now, during wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Now, mandrakes in the ancient Near East, a plant, I don't think we have it in the Pacific Northwest, but it's a kind of Near Eastern plant that was thought to be an aphrodisiac in the ancient world because the root kind of looks like human anatomy, like a human body. I think this is in Harry Potter. I've actually never seen that movie, but it's, it's in the movie or the book or I don't, apparently there's something. When I, I had to Google mandrake aphrodisiac, don't do that by the way, um, <laughs> when I was doing some research and it was just all Harry Potter pictures of really weird stuff, but apparently that's in there. So ancient aphrodisiac. Now, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now this is not like I ran out of flour, can I have some? 
This is a deliberate, like, insult to injury, jab in your face. This is an act of dishonor toward her competition, so to speak, her older brother, Leah. So imagine, imagine, by the way, how you would feel if you were Leah. And so Leah said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrake. So actually the women in the story have more power than it sounds like at a first cursory reading. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. <laughs> Things my wife has never said to me. A hashtag right there. So he slept with her that night. By the way, any of you think the Old Testament is boring? This is like, there's more sex in this than anything on HBO. I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I don't know what it could hold to this, right? This is just crazy. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar, which means, or it sounds like the Hebrew word for reward. My son is my reward. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious, what? Gift. This time my husband will treat me, notice, not with love, but with honor. Different concept. Because I have borne him six sons. She named him Zebulun, which means honor. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. More that's for later in the story. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. So again, in all of the mess, dysfunction, immaturity, addiction, like it's just a, a, a daytime soap mess. God is there in all of it. And notice the compassion of God over Rachel's pain as well. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph, which means in Hebrew, may he add. And she said, may the Lord add to me another son. Okay, one is fine, but I need another. May he add to me another son. Now, there's kind of a long break in the story where the family goes back. Turn over with me to chapter 35, we're just about done, to the end of the story. Chapter 35, verse, let's pick it up in verse 16. Then they, this is the kind of extended family, moved on from Bethel to go back home. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had a great difficulty. So she's pregnant yet again with her second child. As she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair, for you have another son. But as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni means son of my trouble. Now, this is a culture where, and even a, an ancient Near Eastern culture as well as a Hebrew culture, where your name was a moniker for your destiny. Like a parent would name his or her child with a prophetic destiny over his or her life. She is essentially cursing her son with her dying breath. To the point the dad has, the widower has to step in and his father renamed him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. 
So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. Now, if you're sitting here thinking with that cynic in your mind's eye that we all have, at least in this city, what in the world does this pre-modern, misogynistic, quasi-incestual story about patriarchy and sex and family power dynamics and sibling rivalry, story that is basically the ancient Hebrew version of The Handmaid's Tale, what does any of that have to do with the spiritual journey, much less the way of Jesus? How is a story like this anything other than yet one more example that we need to move on from the violence and patriarchy and mess that is the Old Testament? Well, before we answer that, just a short word, in particular for those of you that are new to it, on how the Bible works. The writers of the Bible tell the story of the human condition as it is, not as it should be. So there is no equivalent for the Old Testament in any ancient literature. It's heroic journey, it's mythology, it's nationalistic propaganda, not the Old Testament. One of the many reasons I trust the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is because of how brutally honest it is. There's just no spin. Stories like this, for example, you would expect the editors of the Bible to suppress right, or at least polish up, they don't, not at all. I mean, this is the founding story of the nation of Israel. From these 12 sons, from four mothers, come the 12 tribes, and from the 12 tribes come the nation of Israel. If you wanted to, like, stir up nationalistic zeal in a patriotic people, this is not the story to do it with. And by no standard, by no culture, by no moment in history, they just, the writers of the Bible, air the dirty laundry of the people of God for anybody to come along and read. But in stories like this, we see what scholars call a theology of accommodation, meaning what they mean by that is time after time, God accommodates himself to meet people where they are, not where they should be. And from there, slowly but surely, he moves them forward toward maturity in Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is by far the best way to read the Old Testament and all the stuff that we cringe over, not just the treatment of women, but slavery and violence and religious genocide and pre-scientific ideas over and over. This is God's way with humanity and the human soul. He accommodates himself to people's idolatry and immorality and ignorance to move them forward toward Jesus and into his kingdom. In fact, most of the things that we read in the Old Testament and think of as just woefully, like, like so embarrassing and how behind it is. That's because we're reading this in a Western society that much of which is the inheritance of the way of Jesus. If you read this over against the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern culture, pretty much everything that God does in the story is radically ahead of the time. Not by a few decades, most of the time by a few millennia. Unless we judge God for his compassionate treatment of people who are patriarchal or sexist or immoral or whatever, and it's fascinating how our city and our culture is becoming less and less compassionate in spite of all the talk about tolerance and more and more judgmental. Lest we judge God for his compassionate treatment, this is good news. This is gospel. This is exactly what God does with you and with me. He accommodates himself 
to meet you and I where we are at, not where we should be. And thank God for that. Thank God that he doesn't make wait until I get my act together and then meet me and take me forward. He meets me in my prejudice. He meets me in my greed. He meets me in my lust. He meets me in my pride. He meets me in my ignorance. He meets me in my immaturity. He meets me in my emotional unhealth. He meets me where I am in the human condition. And through Jesus and by the gospel of the kingdom, he moves you and me forward into Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom. That said, there's all sorts of ways of reading this story. One way of reading it is as an expose of Jacob and patriarchy and all about the ancient Near Eastern world. The problem with, and that's fine, the problem is Jacob actually isn't the main character in this story. You would expect that. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. But actually, you know who gets a lot more real estate than Jacob is who? Yeah, the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. Another way of reading the story is as a compare and contrast between two sisters. So let's just think about it through that lens for a few minutes. If you factor in kind of, you know, X number of years per breastfeeding and a few other details in the story, this story that we just read takes place over about 30 or 40 years. So in it, we see the two halves of life in the language of our practice on display. A few thoughts on that. First, both women get wounded by life. For Leah, it's early, pretty early on. For Rachel, it's a bit later. But both women get hurt by just the reality of life. For Leah, it's not just that she doesn't match the cultural standard of beauty. It's far deeper than that. It's that she's unloved by her husband, and worse, she's unwanted. She is literally a debt to pay off for her husband to sleep with another woman. And then her little sister, who is the beauty queen of the family, you can imagine she would rub that in, right, is the one that her husband is in love with, to add insult to injury. Can you imagine, like, the pain of, even me as a man in the model, I'm like, man, dang. Can you imagine the pain of that? For Rachel, it's that she's infertile in a society where a woman's role, and really, and this, there's oppressive examples of this, and there's not at all oppressive examples where it's an honor thing. Her role was to bear children, to continue the family line. This is an agrarian and pastoral society. It's not a knowledge economy. You don't, like, go get a job in advertising. You, your goal as a family to increase your family's honor and with it wealth is more sheep and more field and all of that. And for that, you need as many children as possible and particular sons to work out in the field. So the more children, in particular, the more sons that a woman brought into a marriage or a family, the more honor she was held in. Now, again, set aside right or wrong and all of that, how we read that through our eyes. Just set that aside. This is her wound. This is no small deal. This is not like, well, I'll just really focus on my career instead. This is like devastating to a woman in the ancient Near East. Now, they both deal with their wound, as most any of us would. They attempt to fix the problem, to rise above it, to life hack it, to get, some, get around it somehow, to fight it, to manipulate the people and events of their life to match their ego ideal or the life that they kind of crave at a soul level. For Leah, she just starts churning out babies like she's Elizabeth Moss. And with each one, by the way, I've never even read that book, but I just know about it, all right? Um, for each one, she holds out hope that her husband will come to love her. 
Son number one, Reuben, quote, surely my husband will love me now because look what I've done to heal the wound. Look what I've done to make my husband love me. I gave birth to a son, but it doesn't work. Son two, Simeon, quote, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. Meaning, translation, if I can't find fulfillment and healing of my wound through my marriage, maybe I can find it through my children. Sound familiar at all? You know anything about marriage dynamics, family dynamics, inner psychology of that? This is a shift that many parents, and in particular mothers, make when a marriage is unwell or unhealthy from searching for fulfillment and healing of a wound in a marriage or in a man to searching for it in a child, which is just stifling and suffocating for the child. Never ends well. Son number three, Levi. Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So notice, she just can't quite let go of her desire to be loved by her husband, which of course makes sense. For Rachel... She can't have a baby. That's not an option for her. So she has to manipulate everybody around her, manipulate her sister to get the aphrodisiac, manipulate her husband to sleep with her servant, Bilhuk. She has to fight the reality of her wound, tooth and claw, even if that means she has to wound other people in the process. Can you imagine if you're Bilha, what that would have felt like, the collateral damage of a marriage gone awry. In the end, both of them fail in their attempt to fix the essential problem of their life. But notice they both handle their failure very differently. Leah accepts her wound as a part of her story. She names son number four, Judah, which means praise, and what does she say? Now, this time, I will praise the Lord. And from a, a literary perspective, the writer of this story, that's like glaring and obvious. That's a way of saying she accepts her wound. She makes peace with the pain and the disappointment of her biography. I will never be loved by my husband in the way that I want. I will never have my sister's body. I will never have my dream come true because there's just no, there's no way around that one. And so she just does not fight or cajole or strive or scream at heaven or manipulate or wound. She finds a way to live a happy, joyful, grateful life, even though the script of her biography is not what she wanted. Rachel, on the other hand, does not. She fights reality to the bitter end. For her, life is a competition. Verse 7, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won, and this is my son named my struggle. Notice the irony of that statement. First off, it's not a competition. Last time I checked. Secondly, if it was, she won early on. But she's racked by insecurity, comparison, envy, jealousy, paranoia, and fear, so she can't enjoy her, quote, victory. Secondly, if we are keeping track, then things have changed, and no matter how bad you are at math, her sister has seven children, she has two. By no metrics has she won. But like, you don't have to, she's not that bad at math, right? Like, by no metrics has she won. The point here, from a literary perspective, is she can't accept reality. 
she is still living a fantasy life. Even when she finally does have children, by the compassionate love of God, she can't enjoy them because her life is still a competition. And instead of joy, gratitude, I can't believe after all these years, I finally have a son. It's okay. One, Joseph, may he add, I need more. I'm behind. I need to win. She can't enjoy the child who is right in front of her. Her wealth is not enough. Her privilege is not enough. Her beauty is enough. Her romantic dream marriage is not enough. Her child is not enough. Her life is not enough. Joseph, may he add, she dies cursing her son, wreaking havoc for generations to come. What happens to Leah? After she accepts her wound, after that shift with Judah, now I will praise the Lord. Everything that comes after that for her is gift. She names her next son Gad. What good fortune. The next son Asher, meaning happy, and says how happy I am. And as weird as it sounds to our late modern Western mind, in the moral ecology, and this is really weird to bend your mind around, but in the moral ecology of the ancient Near East, giving her servant to Joseph, not a slave, but a servant, to her husband as another wife was actually an act of self-sacrificial love. As messed up as that is, that's what the heart motivation was. We see that when she names her next son, who's biological, Issachar, and says, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband, end quote. Meaning she did what she did, not for the same reason as her sister, not out of competition, but out of love for her husband and the family line. She is not living for herself anymore, but for others. And then she has another biological son, names him Zebulun, which means honor. And then she says something fascinating in verse 19. God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor. Romantic love is not an option for me. Honor from a life of love, that is. Notice her value set is all changed with age. Meaning after she makes peace with her wound, all of her life becomes a gift. She is rewarded by God for her self-sacrifice. She is honored by her husband for her life of love. She dies old and happy. And to this day, every Sabbath in an Orthodox Jewish home, her name is used in a blessing where the mother blesses the daughters in the home. May the Lord make you like Leah. In the language of our practice, she makes the transition to second half of life spirituality. She goes in the critical journey through the wall, this obstacle, this pain, this, there's no way around it. This is, there's no way to fix this or advocate for this or legislate against this. It just is. She goes through it. She goes through her version of the dark night of the soul. She comes to this place of radical acceptance and gratitude of life, and she is transformed into a woman of love. But that's not even the best part of the story. The best part of the story is that from Judah, the child that from a literary perspective, number four, is symbolic of the shift in the inner dynamics of her heart to a life of radical acceptance. From Judah, which is symbolic of her wound, from him comes the tribe of Judah, and from the tribe of Judah comes the lion of the tribe of Judah, the long-awaited Messiah, not only of Israel, but of the world, that we to this day follow as Jesus of Nazareth. 
Put another way, God used Leah's acceptance of the pain of her life to bring about the healing and salvation of the world. Come on. Now, what happens to Leah? She never makes, I'm sorry, to Rachel. She never makes peace with her wound. Her life is competition, struggle, war, envy, jealousy, discontentment. She, man, she becomes a manipulator, manipulates her husband, her sister, her servant, causing more and more. She just passes down her wound to the next generation. The level of sibling rivalry between her sons and her servant's sons and her sister's sons, it's just gross. She, she literally passes down her wound to the next generation. She dies old, angry, and bitter, her last dying breath cursing her child because he was not enough for her life. In the language of our series, she never makes the transition to the second half. She climbs the first mountain, beauty came beautiful, she gets knocked off, and she says no to the journey through the valley and up to the second mountain. She grows old, but she does not mature. And God is still compassionate with Rachel. He answers her prayer. She has a child, not one, but two. And the first one, Joseph, is the deliverer of Israel in a time of famine, and not just Israel, but all of the ancient Near East. But God brings about healing and salvation in spite of Rachel's life, not because of it. Just because that's what God is like. You know, it's funny. If you were to just read the first part of the story, which is where most people stop, and like, you know, as a reader, you kind of identify with the character in the story and think, who would you rather identify with, Rachel or Leah? That's a weird question, guys. Sorry, but whatever. Most of us would say, well, definitely Rachel. Sucks to be Leah. But if you keep reading, nobody would want to end like Rachel. I don't care how beautiful she was. Nobody would want to end angry and bitter and alone. But Leah becomes the hero of the story. Not only does that, but she has a Star Wars character named after her. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, how much better can it get than that? All because she said yes to the spiritual journey into the second half of life. Now, it's not that hard at all to connect the dots between this story in the ancient world and your story and my story in the late modern Western one and all of our teaching over the last few months on stage theory. If I had to summarize the last few weeks or months of teaching into a line or two, I guess I would say something like, we grow and mature through meeting Jesus in the pain of our life wound. We all get wounded. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how much privilege you come from, how educated you are, how many TED Talks you watch, how many podcasts you listen to, how good your life coach is, how, what your Enneagram number is, or what a hard worker is, or how much you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, all of which is great. But you and I will get wounded. It is inevitable. Life is pain, princess. Princess Bride, which is clearly an inspired movie, right? <laughs> but it's the pain of our wound that has the greatest potential to grow and mature us into Christ-like love and joy and peace that then overflows in generativity for the good of the world. Ironically, in the West, and in particular in the U.S., since the Enlightenment, 
We've basically built our society around that simple formula for a happy life that goes back to John Stuart Mill and other Enlightenment philosophers of, you know, minimize pain, maximize pleasure. But it just doesn't work very well for all sorts of reasons, even, even if you have enough privilege to f attempt that. It doesn't work because the happy life is less of a what, more of a who. It's less about what does or does not happen to us, and it's more about who we become. Do we grow into the kind of people who are marked by the inner disposition of Jesus, of love and of joy and of peace? Or do we devolve and deform into the kind of people who are marked by anger and resentment and cynicism and envy and really live in emotional and relational bondage, not freedom? Nobody has ever told me that their inner man or woman was transformed to Christ-like love by pleasure. Lots of people have said that about pain. I mean, think about it. Like, just has anybody ever said to you, you know what really transformed my life? That vacation to Hawaii. <laughs> it was the turning point in Christ-likeness for me, you know? Or man, what made you such a compassionate person? Oh, when I got rich, that was it. Wealth. <laughs> was just what made me such a compassionate person. No, I have never, maybe you, I have never heard anybody say anything remotely like that. But I hear all the time about how somebody's pain or wound of the life story became the catalyst not only for a life of love, but more than that, for a life of contribution to the healing and salvation of the world. I was reading an interview just a few days ago in Inc. Magazine with the writer Benjamin Hardy on his decision to adopt three kids out of the foster care system, and he had this line, quote, a life of ease is not the pathway to growth and happiness. On the contrary, a life of ease is how you get stuck and confused in life. That same day, I read an article about um, Morse code and Samuel Morse, who that's named after, who was the inventor of the telegraph, which is, of course, the precursor to all modern telecommunications from text messaging to FaceTime. And the backstory was, and forgive me on the details here, but he was on a business trip, I think, down to New York City. And while he was away, his wife got sick and a message was sent. But by the time he got back home, his wife had died and been put in the ground and the funeral was over. And he was just devastated. But that became the catalyst for him to go on and invent the technology that makes it possible for you to FaceTime with your dad in Naples or wherever he is, you know, this afternoon. It was that. I can't, and that got me thinking. I know so many people who are in a vocation, meaning not just a job or a career, which is great, but like have a sense of vocation of this is my calling in life, whether it is a paid thing or they don't get paid for it. It's what they do as a ministry or as a volunteer or a friend, whatever. I, pretty much to a T, the vast majority of them come into that vocation through pain. It's because of my father wound. It's because my little sister died when I was seven. It's because my brother became a drug addict when I was 17. It's because of divorce. It's because of this bad church experience. It's because nobody ever told me about this and everybody needs to know. It's almost always because of pain. Like I think of my own story, the things as I'm like turned 39 a few days ago and so 40 is looming large on the horizon. And I'm, I can't wait for the second half of life, but I'm just at that stage where I'm really starting to think and pray and dream about the second half of my life. All of the ideas I have are like, you trace the story back, it's to pain in my life. Burnout, disappointment, failure as a husband in some ways. Like every single dream I have that is not about me, but is about the kingdom of God goes back to some kind of pain in my life. 
And that's not just me, and that's not you. That's all sorts of us because, this is my point, it is in the facing and the meeting of Jesus and, and him healing our wound that we have the most potential for transformation, not only into happy people, but more importantly, into loving, generative people. But to do this, we have to accept that our wound is a part of our story. The problem we can't fix, the failure we can't make go away. The record, the divorce, the affair, the abuse, the sin done by us or done to us, all of it is a part of our story. Don't misread me, and if you're thinking, are you saying, go back and listen to the teaching on passive spirituality a month ago, I am not saying roll over and play dead to injustice or oppression, in particular if you're a woman or minority, do not, it's not remotely what I'm saying. I'm talking about the things that you and nobody else has the power to change. It's the serenity prayer, right? God, give me wisdom to know the one from the other. We have to accept the reality of our life and give up the fantasy. Some of you aren't, I don't say this in a pretentious way at all, some of you aren't old enough to even really know what that means, so just hold that for later. Some of you are, and you stuck, and you've been stuck for 15 years, because you can't accept reality. I was with somebody yesterday who's an older, wiser, not yesterday, but recently, older, wiser mentor that I really respect, and he said, until I was 40, 40, I was fundamentally inable to accept the reality of my life. That's true for a lot of us in the room. It's hard to do. As T.S. Eliot once said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Because, as the wise have said in the Jesus tradition and outside of it, for a very long time, the greatest problems in life at some level cannot be fixed or solved. And the greatest solutions are internal, not external. That is the wisdom of God at work in the human story across history and across the world. This is the radical acceptance that we see at the heart of Jesus' vision of kingdom life. Because if and when we come to the place of acceptance at that point, all of life becomes gift. All of it. We're free. Free from bondage to, we no longer live in slavery to our fantasy life, to our attachments in the language of our practice. Meaning we define that as all the things we think we need to live a happy life what Keating called our emotional programs for happiness, what Calvinists called the idols of the heart, whatever you want to call these attachments, all of them cause anxiety as they, one, fail to deliver on the promise of a happy life, and two, often fail to materialize in the first place. So we become free from the need for the people and events of our life to conform to this fantasy in our minds. I free to enjoy our life as it actually is, as it comes to us with all of its beauty and truth and goodness and all of its pain and disappointment, free to live in the net positive, free to live in gratitude. I love Robert Mulholland's definition of gratitude. Quote, the deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust without demands, without conditions, and without reservations. If and when we come to that place, we are 
free. Not only to enjoy our life as a gift, but more importantly, again, to love and make our contribution to the world. And it is then that we realize our life isn't about us at all. I mean, the story of Leah and Rachel is in here. Look at, look at that. This is their story in the story. Their story is about a much larger story the Bible tells, not only about Israel, but about the creation and fall and healing and salvation of humanity as a whole, down through human history. The story is not just in here to teach you and I a moral lesson. Goodness gracious. Certain grade schoolers should not even be allowed to read this story. It's in here, more importantly, to teach you and I where Jesus the Messiah comes from from Israel, who comes from 12 tribes, who come from Leah's wound and Rachel's sin and Jacob's mistake and Abraham's willingness to say yes to the spiritual journey and above all from the fidelity of the compassionate God to the promise that he made thousands of years ago. Go to a land that I will show you. I will bless you and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. This story isn't about Leah at all, but about what God was doing in and through Jesus to bless the world. In the same way, the spiritual journey that you, that I are invited by Jesus to go on isn't about our pain, isn't just about our pain and how we come to a happy life or even how we become more loving people. It isn't at some level about us at all. It's part of a much larger story about what God is doing through Jesus and his people to bless the world. And our story only makes sense if and when we live into that larger story. Our pain, the meaninglessness of what feels like the meaningless of our pain, our disappointment, the mistakes we make, the sin done to us, all of that that feels so cruel and chaotic and random and merciless it only makes sense if and when we incorporate it and we say yes to Jesus' work through our pain, yes to his transformation, yes to his good out of evil, and we fold our story up into the larger story of what Jesus is doing in the world and come to realize that what Jesus said to every disciple is true. If anyone would come after me, let him take up, let them take up their cross and follow me. We come to realize that the cross is the pathway to the kingdom of God, that death is the pathway to life. Let's stand together and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join the circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.